All right, let's bow in a word of prayer together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. You are such a great God, and we are so pleased to be able to be called the children of God. And we thank you, Lord, for the things you teach us and how you operate in and through our lives. Our prayer, Father, is that you continue to instruct us and teach us in the way that we should go. Lord, we've been learning from what you have done in the life of Job, and there, there is so much more yet to learn and all of us need to grow in our understanding of you and how we live for you. And we just pray that the things we learn tonight would help us move that direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Job chapter 12. In fact, Job 12, 13, and 14 this evening. 75 verses. Job's longest response. And we're going to learn a lot about the man uh, tonight as we have learned in previous weeks. You see, sometimes we forget this, but crisis reveals character. It always does. Crisis doesn't develop character. It reveals the true man. And so you're able to see the real man, Job. It's like your life. You know, it's easy for us to sit back and things are okay and and trust the Lord. But when crisis happens... When tragedy strikes, when affliction comes, then the real you shines forth. That's who you really are. And so we're able to see Job, his true colors, his true character. That's what makes him so unique. Because amidst all the things that happen to him that are horrendous, we're able to see a man who trusts God and believes in God and never reneges on his faith. Because his true character, his true colors come shining through. And my prayer for you and for me is that that's the way it be in our lives. And, and none of us, and I would pray this would always be the case, but would never have to experience all the things Job's experienced. But when he would lose things, his family, when he would uh, lose his health, and on top of all the criticism he faced, he never turned his back on the Lord. But the trueness of the man would shine forth because he was truly an upright man, a God-fearing man, a man who turned away from evil, a man who truly loved his God. So my prayer for you and me as we study this book, no matter what the conflict that comes in our lives, it could be a relational conflict, it could be a work conflict, it could be a family conflict, or what adversity strikes your life, the real you will rise up and shine bright for the glory of God's kingdom. Because that's the real you shining through. It's like when you're with your wife at home or you're with your husband and there's an uproar, okay? That conflict tells you a lot about you. Now, you're going to say it's going to tell you a lot about your spouse, but really it's a lot about you and how you respond to those kinds of issues. And so you want to make sure that you're in the Word. You're on your knees. You're growing in righteousness, so that when those times come, as Job was, he was the kind of man, remember I told you last week, and early on, Job 1 and 2 set the tone for the rest of the book. And because Job's character was righteous, because his life was God-fearing, when everything happened to him, he was able to trust his God all the more, because that's what crisis does. It drives you to your knees. It drives the believer to his God. And that's what it did for Job. So when you come to chapter 12, 13, and 14, you you have to admire Job. Because in his case, amidst all of the conflict, he didn't cave, nor did he crumble. In fact, the stronger the rebuke, the stronger the resistance The harsher the condemnation, the stricter the resilience on Job's part. And so here's a man who, having lost everything, is facing criticism, and he's done nothing wrong. And yet, he faces it day in and day out. And as he's doing that, he becomes stronger against the criticism. So this is good for you and me, right? Right? Because every one of us faces 
criticism, people who want to condemn us for our stand here or our stand there or, or condemn us for Christianity or condemn us because of what, we, what our convictions are. And you just you learn from Job that no matter what the criticism is, you're able to stand. And that's exactly what Job does. So in 75 verses, he's going to answer Zophar. He's also going to answer Eliphaz and Bildad because he's going to use the plural you. And so he's going to answer all three men in his response, which is a good thing because they all need to hear what he has to say. So remember now, we, we understand Job 1 and 2. We understand what God's doing in the heavens. We understand the sovereignty of God. We understand that God has allowed Satan to do all this in his life. The three friends don't know that. Job doesn't know that. So, so we have the benefit. Job doesn't have the benefit of knowing that. We're able to understand it. So remember, it's easy as you study the book of Job to get lost in the conflict, in the conversation, in the crisis, and forget that God is in control of all that's happening. It's like when you, when you go through a difficult period, right? You tend not to remember that God is still on the throne. God never steps off the throne. He's still in charge. And so it's easy for us as we're reading through the book of Job to forget that God's sovereignty rules in and through men's suffering. And so you always need to keep that in mind as you, as you read the book of Job because it's so easy to get lost in all that's, that's happening. And so as we look at this, this speech, we're going to see three things, one in chapter 12, one in chapter 13, and one in chapter 14. In Job chapter thir- uh, 12, you're going to see Job's emphasis on the character of God. In chapter 13, you're going to see Job's explanation of his commitment to God. And in chapter 14, you're going to see Job expound on the condition of man and its hopelessness and his hopefulness. Okay? So just basically three points through three chapters. As always, we'll just read through the the text, explain some things to you, stop at certain locations, and emphasize some things so you can begin to grasp all that's happening. So Job's going to respond to Zophar and his three friends. It begins in chapter 12, verse number 1. Then Job responded, truly then you are the people, and with you wisdom will die. In other words, you guys are everything. With you all the wisdom is, is spoken. And when you guys die, I guess evidently there'll be no more wisdom because you have it all. A little bit of sarcasm on Job's part. Now remember, he's in pain. The pus is still oozing from his sores. The flies are still gathering all around him. But yet he finds time to be just a little sarcastic as he responds to Zophar and his friends. Evidently, you guys are the wisest of the wise. And you guys hold all the wisdom. And when you guys finally die, guess what? No more wisdom. It's all going to be gone. He says, but I have intelligence as well as you. I am not inferior to you. See, they, they, they saw themselves as superior. And Job says, I'm not inferior to you. In fact, in chapter 13, verse 2, he says, again, what you know, I also know, I am not inferior to you. You see, it's easy to have feelings of inferiority when people condemn you and criticize you. As if you're a lesser person. But you're not. You're still made in the image of God, like they are. And you're able to know the things that they know. And Job was going to let them downplay his character. And see him as inferior, because he wasn't. So he says, And who does not know such things as these? In other words, listen, the things you're telling me, everybody knows. Do you guys think that nobody else knows these things? I know them. And on top of that, you guys haven't added anything to my life. I know what you know. You haven't brought comfort to my pain. You haven't brought consolation to my distress. You've only accentuated it. So he says, in verse number four, I am a joke to my friends. The one who called on God and he answered him, the just and blameless man is a joke. He says, you've mocked me. You look at me as a joke. But I'm the just and blameless guy. He's not saying that egotistically. 
Remember, the Lord said this about him. Now, he doesn't know that God has already said this about Job, right? That he was blameless, God-fearing, upright, turning away from evil. But Job is just expressing the reality of his life. You call me a joke, but I'm just a blameless. You make fun of me because you think I've done this gross sin, and I'm being punished because of it, and you, you treat me as if I'm nothing. That's just not the case. So he says in verse number five, he who is at ease holds calamity and contempt as prepared for those whose feet slip. The tents of the destroyers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure, whom God brings into their power. In other words, you think that no one else knows this, but let me tell you something. There are people who condemn God. There are people who provoke God, and guess what? They live at ease. There's no pain in their life. There are people who sin against God, and they're okay. There's no problem. Because you're telling me that because I have problems, I'm a sinner. But wait a minute. There are a lot of people who are sinners who have no problems. So how do you reconcile that? It's the same thing the psalmist said in, in Psalm, Psalm 73. Verse number one, when he said, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their bodies fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. The psalmist is saying, you know, I don't understand this. God is supposed to be good to Israel. And yet, I'm an Israelite, and things are bad. But all the wicked seem to prosper tremendously. Everything's good for them. So he says in verse number 16, when, when I pondered to understand this, I, it was troublesome in my sight. And then he says, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Wow, what a statement. I... I was troubled by what I saw. I was troubled as to why the, the wicked man would prosper, why those who would speak against God seem to live life at ease with no problems. And as an Israelite, as one that, Israel's, that God's supposed to be good to, <laughs> there's all kinds of problems in my life. So as I pondered this, when I came to the sanctuary, I realized and perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. You see, he had to get perspective because he didn't have it. So where did he go? In modern day vernacular, he went to church. He went to church to gain perspective to hear the word of the Lord, to understand what's going on, so he has perspective on the unbeliever and realizing where he's going to end up. See, we forget that, that when, when you come and gather together in the sanctuary of the Lord with, with the people of God and the word of God is preached and you hear the word of God, what happens? You begin to understand what God's doing. We begin to understand that God's at work. And therefore, we can begin to perceive the end of those that we think are getting off scot-free. But he realized their eternal destiny. That's why he would close by saying that the nearness of God is my good. God is near to me. What else do I need? And Job, he just wants to tell his friends because they are adamant that Job is a wicked man. That's why he's suffering. And they keep pounding the same theme. And they're relentless with the same theme. And Job's like, guys, look, I am not inferior to you guys. I'm a just and blameless man. But you treat me as if I'm a joke. But have you forgotten that there are people that live with contempt toward God? 
and they prosper, and they live a life at ease. They're not suffering, and they're wicked. So it goes on and says these words. Verse number, number seven. But now ask the beasts and let them teach you, and the birds of the heavens and let them tell you. Or speak to the earth and let it teach you. Let the fish of the sea declare to you who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, and whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. What an indictment. He says, do you know that even the fish, the beasts, the birds understand as best they can that they're in the hand of God? He gives them breath. They live because of him. Every man lives and breathes because of him. He's talking about God's sovereign control. He's accentuating the character of God as it, as it relates to man and everything on the earth, even the animals. They're all under God's control, under God's sovereign design. He feeds them. They breathe because of him. Everything happens because of them. Does not the ear test words or the palate taste its food? Of course it does. Wisdom is with the aged man, with long life is understanding. In other words, guys, listen, wisdom comes with age. You guys aren't that old. And with that comes understanding. And so it's an indictment against what they're saying. But then he says this, verse 13. With him, though, with God, are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. Verse 16. With him are strength and sound wisdom. He's going he's to speak of the, of the character of God. He's going to speak of the, the power and wisdom of God. That God is sovereign. That he controls everything. Job has a great perspective on God. He has a better perspective on God than we do. And we got great theology books. We have a mini multitude of books we can read. We have the Bible. But Job has a sound theology. Listen to what he says. Behold, he tears down and it cannot be rebuilt. He says, you know what? There are men who build houses and cities. But if God tears it down, it can't be rebuilt. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Man built Sodom and Gomorrah, but when God tore it down, it's never been rebuilt. Because God's in charge. He imprisons a man and there can be no release. That could be speaking of hell. He says, behold, he restrains the waters and they dry up. And he sends them out and they inundate the earth. The flood. Flood comes because God says, come, rain. Erupts from the deep. And it covers the earth. What he wants it to go away and recede, does exactly what he says. With him, our strength and sound wisdom. The misled and the misleader belong to him. Isn't that great? Do you know the deceiver belongs to God? The crafty person? The one who, who manipulates you belongs to God. They are all a part of God's plan, some way, somehow, to work in your life. God's in charge. He says he makes counselors walk barefoot, makes fools of judges. He loosens the bond of kings and binds their loins with a girdle. He makes priests walk barefoot and overthrows the secure ones. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on nobles and loosens the belt of the strong. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness into light. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. <laughs> you know, when God raises up a nation, think of the Assyrian nation. God raised them up, boom, they're gone. Think of the great Egyptian nation. God raised them up, boom, they're gone. God can raise them up whenever he wants to raise them up. Tear them down whenever he wants to tear them down because he's in charge. No one tells him what to do. No one can manipulate him. He controls everything. So he says these words. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people. He makes them wander in a pathless waste. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Wise king, right? And God took his kingdom from him and made him wander in the wilderness for seven years until he realized who God was and that God was the one who ruled the earth and ruled the universe and everything was subject to him. Because God can do that. 
They grope in darkness with no light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Wow. Job has great understanding. He understands God. That God does all this, whether it's people who are kings or priests, whether it's cities, whether it's nations, whether it's nature. God's in charge of everything. He rules it all. So in Job's, in Job's emphasis, he accentuates the character of God. And then in chapter 13, he's going to uh, explain, explain his commitment to God. Look what it says. Behold, my eyes, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. Now, now think about this for a minute. Think about that. He says, behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. Contrast that with Job 42, verse number 5. After God speaks, and what does he say? Oh, I have heard of you with the hearing of my ear. But now my eyes have seen you. He says, my eyes have seen all this. In fact, he even understands it. But his eyes need to see God. And so he's going to say that, remember, not when God gives Job an explanation as to what's going on, because God never gives Job an explanation. He says that after God gives Job a revelation of himself. Same thing is true back in the, in the book of Exodus. Remember Moses? You know this. Show me your glory. I need to see your glory. Just show me who you are. And God says, I can't let you see my glory. I'll have to kill you. You're going to die. So I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. So it says in verse 5 of chapter 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord God, compassion, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses, verse 8, made haste to bow low toward the earth and Worship, not because of what he saw, but because of what God said. God proclaimed. He couldn't see God live, right? So what God said about his character revealed to, Joe, uh, to, uh, to Moses who God is. The revelation caused him to bow down and worship. That's what the revelation of God does. That's why, that's why we preach the word. And teach you what the scriptures say. Because when we preach the word, the revelation of God causes you to take note, bow down, and worship him. So when God reveals himself to Job and asks Job a series of questions, tons of questions, and answers those questions, Job will say, oh, I've heard of you, but now I've seen you. You can only see God through the Word of God, through the lens of Scripture, through the revelation of God. John 14, the Lord says that if you keep my commandments, I will manifest myself to you. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see God through a pure heart. You see God because you understand the revelation of God. Because this is the word of God. And that word, our God, became flesh and dwelt among us. So important. So Job says, behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. But you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. He calls them physicians. Why? Because in all reality, what's going to bring healing to Job? Truth. The reality of his God. But because they're incapable or unwilling to set aside their partial beliefs about 
what God is doing, they can't bring healing to his life. So he calls them worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be completely silent and it would become your wisdom. If you guys just remain quiet, not said anything, you would exude a lot more wisdom than once you opened your mouth. Because once you opened your mouth, there was no wisdom that came forth. He says this, will you speak what is unjust for God? Will you speak what is deceitful for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he examines you? Or will you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely reprove you if you secretly show partiality. And he does. He does rebuke them. He does reprove them. At the end, God reproves all of them, but not Job. He speaks well of Job. And then it says, Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall on you? In other words, you guys have no humility. Do you really fear God? Does the dread of God, does the fear of God fall upon you? He condemns them because they operate with no humility. Your memorable sayings are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. You say nothing and your words are worthless. So then comes verse number 13. And in verse number 13, you have the greatest declaration of faith in Scripture. In verses 13 down through verse number 17. Mark it down. This becomes man's greatest declaration of faith. Be silent before me so that I may speak. Then let come on me what may. He says, look, just need to be quiet and let me speak to God. And whatever God does with me, let it be. What an attitude. God, do whatever you want. Whatever you want to do. God. Now, God's going to do whatever he wants, to, whether you ask him that or not, right? But to acquiesce to that and say, Lord, Lord, just do whatever you want to do. Doesn't make any difference. I'm going to come. I'm going to speak to you. And I know it's a dangerous place to be. But as I commune with you, Lord, do whatever you want. And then listen to this. He says, why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? What a perspective. What a perspective. He is, he is telling us that he knows that God is way beyond him. And that if he goes to God, he's taking his life in his hands. If he speaks to God, he's in danger of losing his life. He understands that. But he has a great perspective on, on God. He lives in the fear of God. That's why he's a God-fearing man. See? He's a God-fearing man because he truly fears God. I love these people today. Well, you know, the fear of God is just having a holy reverence for God. No, it's not. Who says that? The fear of God actually is living in the fear of God. That's why Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, I persuade men. I am, I am scared to death of God's terror, so much so that I'm going to persuade men. To live in the fear of God actually means to fear the true and living God. Isaiah 8, verse number 13 says this, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Wow. Really? Seriously? Then it says this, Then he shall become a sanctuary. Then it will become a hiding place. Then it will become a secure place. If God is your fear and God is your dread, you'll find peace and safety in him. Because the God you fear is your protector. The God you fear is your shield. The God you fear is the one who watches over you. That's why the Bible says, to this man will I look. To him who is broken and of a contrite heart. And what? Who shakes uncontrollably under the authority of my word. Now you think about that. How many people sit in the pew week after week, hear a sermon, and it means nothing to them? They don't shake. Everybody in the room should shake uncontrollably under the authority of God's word. When God speaks, it's all authoritative. When God speaks, it, it means everything. That's why, that's why uh, 
uh, Moses would say, these words are not futile words. These words are not empty words. They really are your life. These are the words of God. We go to our Bible and we read a few passages here and a few verses here. And, and you know, we, it really doesn't mean that much. We just kind of read it. Instead of looking at this as the word of God that I am to shake uncontrollably under its authority. When you come to church, you should weep for what you've heard. You should cry for what you've heard. And realize, man, I have fallen so far short of the glory of God. God says, this is the guy I look to. This is the guy I admire. The one who is broken of the contrite heart and troubles of my word. See, the point is, if your heart's not broken and contrite, you don't care what God says. You don't care what he says. But if your heart's broken because of your sin, and you live a life of contrition, right? When God speaks, you tremble. Because you know you deserve, you deserve death. You don't deserve to live. But God in his grace and mercy lets you live. He saves you. He lifts you up. He makes you one of his children. And that should just cause us to live in the, in the, in the fear of the true and living God. So back to the book of Job, Job chapter 13. He says these words, verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. That, that, that one statement right there is man's greatest declaration of faith. There is a realization of sovereignty. There's a recognition of dependency. When you truly realize that God is sovereign overall, You have to depend upon him. The reason we live such independent lives, the reason we we get up in the morning and we don't pray, the reason we don't pray without ceasing, the reason we don't spend time in the word, memorizing the word, the reason we don't spend time sharing our faith, just going through life on easy street, is because we really haven't recognized God's sovereignty so that we learn to live in dependency upon him. Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. I'll trust in him. If he wants to kill me, he can kill me. It's a total relinquishment on Job's part. Because no matter what he does, nothing is going to change my hope in him. Nothing. I mean, after all, what more can he do? (laughs) I have nothing left. Right? My health is down the tubes. My job, gone. My home, gone. My kids, gone. Only thing left to take, my wife. If he wants her, hey, you know what? He can take her, right? She's no help to me now anyway. She's not encouraging me. She's not rubbing my back. She's not doing anything. But he says, look, it's okay. Though he slay me, I'm going to hope in him. Because he only hoped in God. He didn't hope in anything else. Didn't hope in his friends. Didn't hope in his job. Didn't trust in anything or anyone else other than God. That's the way our lives are to be, see? This is the greatest declaration of faith in Scripture. So read on. It says, nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation or my deliverance. For a godless man may not come before his presence. He knows that. In other words, I can come before his presence because I am a God-fearing man. But a godless man, he can't. But I can. Wow, what a statement. So he says, listen carefully to my speech. Let my declaration fill your ears. Behold, now I have prepared my case. I know that I will be vindicated. Who will contend with me? Who will plead with me? For then I will be silent and die. Is there anybody to plead for me? Anybody stand in the gap and mediate for me? No. There's no one there. And if I remain silent, I'll perish. In other words, I need to communicate with God. I need to talk to God. I need to, to argue with God. I need to go to him. You see, what Job does is show us that, look, no matter what's going on, go to God. Just go to God. Cry out to God. That's what Job does. And so he says, listen, if I don't do this, I perish. In other words, Christ said it this way, Luke 18, verse number 1, men are always to pray and not to faint. If you pray, you won't faint. If you're fainting, it's because you're not praying. You see, 
So Job says, if I don't do this, I'll perish. I need to commune with my God. Verse 20, only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide from your face. Remove your hand from me and let not the dread of you terrify me. Because you see, he's afraid. He's afraid to approach God. Because it's a, it's a, it's a terrifying thing. Now remember, he doesn't understand New Covenant. doesn't understand the New Testament. He doesn't understand, you know, the veil being torn down. He doesn't, understand, he doesn't have that stuff like you and I do. So he says these words, then call and I will answer. Or let me speak, then reply to me. This is faith. This is faith. Lord, if you call, I'll, I'll answer. If you just say something, I'll answer. If not, let me speak. And then, then you reply. See, he just longs to commune with his God. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make known to me my rebellion and my sins. What a, what a, what a statement. Lord, how many times have I sinned? What, what have I done? Make, make them known to me. What, what about my rebellion? Tell me about it. When was the last time you cried out to God and said, Lord, tell me my sins. I want to confess them to you, but I might not know what they all are. T- tell me what they are. I, I, I want to confess them. I, I, wanna, I, I want my, my life to be exposed to you, Lord. Now, your life is exposed. But Job wants to know what they are because he wants to deal with them. Now, remember, Job 1 he offered up sacrifices on a regular basis. So he thinks that all of his sins have been atoned for, that they've, they've been covered because he's offered up sacrifices. But just in case he hasn't, he wants to know what they are. So he says, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you cause a driven leaf to tremble or will you pursue the dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me to inherit the iniquities of my youth. Am I, am I, being, am I suffering because of some sin I've committed when I was younger? You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet while I am decaying like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Are, are these all the consequences of my sin? That I can't move, I can't go anywhere, like my feet are in stocks? Lord, what's going on? Here's the man who just cries out to God. You see, that's what the psalmist does all throughout the, the book of the Psalms. See, we, we've lost that today because we're so quick to cry out to others and not to God. And God wants us to cry out to Him, to trust Him and to believe in Him. That's what He wants. It's no wonder God just loves Job, man. No wonder God says, this is the greatest man on the planet. <laughs> Ain't nobody greater than Job. He just wants me. He wants to understand me. So I wonder he got such praise from God. So you come to chapter 14, and, and this is where Job expounds on the condition of man. And he gives us a, a true picture of man who is hopeless. But Job has hope. Listen to this. Man who is born of a woman is short-lived and full of trouble. Amen? Amen, right? Man born of a woman, that's every one of us here today, right? Is short-lived. You're not going to live very long. I did break it to you. You might live to be 90, okay? You're living on borrowed time if you live to be 90 because you're promised three score and seven years, uh, three score and 10, which is 70 years, right? So if you're above 70, you're living on borrowed time. Tom, that's you, buddy. Living on borrowed time, right? But praise be to God. So I don't know how long you're going to live, but man, short-lived, Born in trouble. Born in trouble. And Job knows that very well. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. You also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Man, his life is so brief. He speaks of the brevity of life. And then he emphasized the fact that in that life, nobody can make himself clean. Even Job knows man can't save himself. Job knows he can't cleanse himself. Nobody can be clean before God. Because man can't do that. Because he's filled with sin. So verse 5, since his days are determined, 
the number of his months is with you. And this limit you have set so that he cannot pass. What a statement. His days are determined. You put limits on his life. Nobody in the room lives any longer than God ordains. Change your eating habits. Take all your diet pills. Take all your health additives. Whatever you got to do, take whatever you want. You're not going to live one day longer than God has already determined your life because all your days are never someone their name before there's even yet one of them, right? Now, you don't want to live in pain, so if you live out of, without pain, that's a good thing, right? But you're all going to live as long as God has ordained it to live. Job knows this. Job knows he's going to die on time. He, he knows he's not going to die early. He's not going to die late. He's going to die on time. Everybody dies on time. No matter how you die, hurricane, tornado, fire, shot, hit by a car, they all die in time. There's no accidents. Why? He says it. His days are determined. The number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Can't live beyond his limits. Wow. Turn your gaze from him that he may rest until he fulfills his day like a hired man. For there is hope for a tree when it's cut down, and it will sprout again, and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground, and its stump dies in the dry soil, and at the scent of water it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. In other words, trees, you cut them down. Guess what? Give them a little bit of water. They're going to sprout back up again. They're going to grow again. But man, verse 10, dies and lies prostrate. Man expires where he is. In other words, man has to rise up again. The finality of death is going to come. As water evaporates from the sea and a river becomes parched and dried up, so a man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. He will not awake nor be aroused out of sleep. He emphasizes the brevity of life and the finality of death. Why? Now remember, Job lives in the patriarchal time. The whole theology of the resurrection comes progressively throughout time, which manifests itself primarily in the New Testament with the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, right? So Job is going to ask the question in just a moment, if a man dies, will he live again? That's the ultimate question, right? Nothing else really matters. If a man dies, does he live? If he lives, where does he live? That's the question. Job knows to ask the right question. So he says, oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, the place of the dead. Sheol is not hell. Sheol is the place of the dead. That you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you. Lord, when I die, conceal me till your wrath passes. That you would set a limit for me and remember me. Who said that? Thief on the cross. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The thief who hung with Christ on the cross. He knew that the guy hanging next to him was a king. He had a kingdom. Not because it said, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, above Christ. But he knew he was a king. And he had a kingdom. And he also believed in a resurrection. So he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, Lord, when we're dead, because we're, we're both going to die, we're hanging here, we're both going to die, so when, when we both die, would you please remember me when you come into your kingdom? And the Lord said, today you shall be with me in paradise. Job says, Lord, hide me, protect me. Set a limit for me in that place of the dead. And the Lord, remember me. And listen to what he says. If a man dies, will he live again? That's the question. All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. What change? Until you resurrect me. Job understood whatever he could about a resurrection, but not nearly as much as you and me. He knew that there was life after death. He just didn't know that much about it because he didn't have what we have. So he says, you will call and I will answer you. 
You will long for the work of your hands. In other words, he knows God is going to take him home. You will long for me because I am the work of your hands. I was created in your image. You put me together. And you will call me and I will answer. You will call me and I will come because you're going to take the work of your hands into your presence. Job knows that, see? So he says, for now, you number my steps. You do not observe my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you wrap up my iniquity. He, he, t- he talks about how all his sins are covered. He talks about how his sins are all wrapped up and that God will remember him. He says, but the falling mountain crumbles away and the rock moves from its place. Water wears away stones its torrents wash away the dust of the earth. In other words, death's coming. It's either going to come rapidly or gradually, but it's going to come. And he says this, you forever overpower him and he departs. You change his appearance and send him away. You know, God's changing our appearance, right? Every day we're getting older. As we get older, guess what? We get more wrinkles, right? Our skin becomes more scaly. We begin to shrink because our bones condense. God's changing our appearance. With age comes the change of our... None of us look like we did when we were 15 and 20 and 25 and 30. Why? Because we're getting older. As you get older, you get weaker, you get crinklier, if that's a word, or wrinklier. All kinds of issues come, right? And then he says this. His sons achieve honor. He doesn't know it. Why? He's dead. He says, or they become insignificant, but he can't see it, can't perceive it. But his body pains him, and he mourns only for himself. That's the hopelessness of man. Because man without God has nothing. Job articulates for us not only the, the brevity of life, and not only the finality of death, but Job articulates for us the certainty of a resurrection. He articulates for us the iniquity of man. And he articulates for us the beauty of hope. Job lived in hope. If you look at chapter 13, and you just want to camp out on chapter 12 and just camp out on one verse, you camp out on verse 10. In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Just camp out in that verse. Then go to chapter 13 and camp out, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Then you go to chapter 14 and you camp out on this verse. If a man dies, will he live again? See, that's the question every one of us needs to ask, right? If a man dies, will he live again? The answer is yes. Christ says, because I live, John 14, 19, you too will live. John 11, he says, on the resurrection and the life. There is a resurrection that's going to come for all men. And here is Job trying to articulate all that he knows about God, and he doesn't know near the things that you and I know. can't even come close to it. He can't begin to articulate a theology of life, death, and resurrection. He understands life. He understands the brevity of life. He understands death. But the resurrection, he wants God to remember him. And when you call, I'll come. But he just doesn't know all the details surrounding it. It's no wonder God loves him so. It's no wonder God admires him so. It's no wonder God says, this is the greatest guy on the planet. I mean, there's no one articulating these things but Job. And here are his three friends all wrapped around him. And they're listening to Job speak. But it's making no impact on their lives. Why? Because they're arrogant. They're not humble. They're not God-fearing men. They're just sitting there looking for the next opportunity to speak. They just got to say the next word. They got to get the next word out. Just just to tell Job how wrong he is. And then to articulate what they know, but really what they don't know. But Job, when he responds... He responds and articulates true hope and belief in a God, his God, that he truly fears. And this should be the the life that you and I live. This should be us. We, We know that our hope is rooted in God. He's the God of hope, right? 
fact, Romans 15 tells us in Romans 15, verse number 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so you will abound in hope. Isn't that great? Hope is always rooted in God. That's why Joe had hope, because his whole life was rooted in who God is. But not only is hope rooted in God, hope is only received by grace. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 16, Now may the, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. It's only by God's grace that we have hope. And hope rooted in God and received by grace was ratified in the resurrection. Christ says, because I live, you'll live. One day everybody in the, in the graves will hear my voice and they will all rise. All rise. So a man says, if a man, if a man lives, will he, if a man dies, will he live again? The answer, absolutely. The question is, where will you live? And that hope is always reinforced by the Scriptures. Psalm 119 tells us, Thy word has given me hope. You can't expect to have hope if you don't spend time in the Word of God. Yeah, hope's received by grace. Yes, it's rooted in God. It's ratified by the resurrection. But hope is always, always reinforced by the Scripture. And hope, hope is, is reaffirmed by the Spirit of God. Back to Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God reaffirms that hope in us. So we go through life and we know that one day we're going to die. Because our life is short. And when a man dies, will he live again? Yes, we know that. Why? Because of the resurrection of Christ. Because of God who is called the living God. And the living God has given us a living word, according to Peter's epistle. And that living word tells us about a living hope. We don't have a dead hope. Hope's not dead. Hope's alive. It's a living hope because we serve a living God who, gi who gives us a living word. So we believe in life because our God is the God of life who lives triumphantly. So we trust him and believe in him. And we can say as Job, he can do whatever he wants. Though he slays me, I will hope in him. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you, Lord, for today, the opportunity we have to trust you and believe in you. Thank you for, thank you for Job. He opens the door to so many questions that could be unanswered, but he answers them because, Lord, he really believes in his God and knows his God. And our prayer, Father, is that we would be a people who live in the light of that hope. May we be able to say as Job, Lord, you can do whatever you want. If you want to kill us, kill us. But we're still going to hope in you, trust in you, believe in you, follow you because you're all that matters. That was Job, the greatest man on the planet. Help us, Lord, to follow in his footsteps. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.